Hi, and uh, welcome back to the afternoon session of the 2021 Cato Surveillance Conference uh, in virtual form for the first time. Uh, we're here for our uh, initial afternoon discussion session. Um, as you may have noticed, we've changed our setup a little bit because the uh, topic of this session is anonymity and freedom. And for reasons that will become clear shortly, one of our uh, discussants uh, needs for her own safety to remain uh, anonymous. Uh, so I'll also ask anyone in the audience, uh, there's a handful of people physically present, um, please no photographs of any kind. Um, so uh, we have on the one hand, uh, Afsana Rigo, who is a, a researcher at uh, Harvard's Belfer Center who studies uh, the privacy and security needs of uh, LGBTQ plus communities in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, including issues like uh, data harvesting from uh, dating apps by uh, uh, homophobic regimes and has uh, uh, chosen to write and work under uh, a pseudonym um, for her own safety and the safety of her family. Um, and on my left, uh, Jeff Kossif, a professor at uh, the United States Naval Academy, um, probably best known uh, for his book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, um, a, The Definitive Study of Section 230, a um, small, obscure uh, uh, internet uh, defamation liability rule that uh, no one has ever uh, discussed again. If uh, the pattern holds, uh, the fact that Jeff has a forthcoming book on uh, the, uh, uh, called uh, The United States uh, of Anonymous uh, about the relationship between uh, anonymity and speech and online discourse uh, means that uh, we will be uh, watching congressional hearings on that topic for uh, the next several years on a, on a weekly basis. Um, I also want to just remind folks who are watching at home, um, uh, the, your participation in the conference is, is part of the conference, so please, if you have questions for our speakers, um, you can ask questions on the Cato website uh, alongside the video on YouTube or uh, on Twitter by using the hashtag uh, CatoSpyCon. I have a magical device that will allow me to uh, convey your questions to our speakers. Um, so yeah, I guess, why don't we start with the, um, the historical perspective. Uh, if you, you've uh, chosen to write a book um, focusing on uh, the right to anonymous uh, speech and, and the legal evolution uh, of that doctrine. Um, where we live in sort of an era where um, I think anonymity, online anonymity gets blamed for um, a whole lot of what's so toxic about internet culture. Um, but we have a kind of robust, uh, both sort of practical and, and legal tradition of anonymous speech. So what, what is it your, um, your research for this book sort of turned up about that picture? Sure, well, thanks for having me. And I have to first give the disclaimer that everything I say is only on my behalf, not on behalf of the US Navy, the Department of Defense, the Naval Academy. Nobody wants to take responsibility for what I say except me. So uh, with that disclaimer out of the way, um, yeah, so the history of anonymous speech really, where when I was writing the book, at first I started, I said, well, I'll just go back to the court cases that were really in the 1950s that established it. And then those court cases cited uh, much, uh, a lot of the foundational documents like the Federalist Papers. Um, but then I went back even a little further to England to the letters of Junius, uh, which was a person who really did not like the king um, and had some really scathing commentary about the king, about 
Uh, the prime minister, actually, his commentary about the prime minister made him step down um, or was one of the driving factors. Uh, he had commentary about the colonies and how the colonies were being treated. Um, and he was able to do it uh, fully anonymously or pseudonymously. He used a pen name, Junius. Um, there's now, hundreds of years later, there's at least not consensus, but there's at least a a plurality of historians believe that it was a certain individual, but uh, there's still not a definitive consensus. And what I really found fascinating is I looked back at some of his private letters and other documents to see how Junius maintained anonymity, and it was pretty intricate. Uh, Junius would uh, would have write something in his own hand, but then have someone else write it in their hand. Uh, so people couldn't tell who it might be. There were like five different drop-off points for the letters. Um, it, it was pretty, for the 1700s, it was pretty good operational security at the time. And um, I traced that as well as a number of other foundational uh, colonial documents, including Thomas Paine's Common Sense, uh, the Zanger trial, which established uh, pretty strong protections for the press, but that was the publication of anonymous pamphlets or anonymous newspaper articles, uh, and the Federalist Papers, which uh, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay wrote under the pseudonym Publius. And there were different rationales. So Junius uh, very well had his safety at risk for if his name were associated. Uh, but there are other motivations, uh, including business motivations. So you're, you could lose your job uh, if you're unmasked, saying something that's unpopular. Uh, for the Federalist Papers and for Common Sense, it wasn't as much about safety, but it was about the actual speech impact, that um, something written by Alexander Hamilton has a different impact of something written under a Roman ruler's name. So there were a lot of different motivations, um, and I traced those motivations to the legal, uh, the, the legal right to anonymous speech, which really started as a right to anonymous association in the 1950s, sort of post-Brown versus Board of Education. There were, the NAACP was working to integrate schools in the South, and uh, there were officials in, first in Alabama, then in Arkansas, who did not like that. And they uh, fought really hard. And in Alabama, they found that the Alabama chapter of the NAACP uh, had not complied with this bureaucratic rule about registering a corporation. Um, and so the NAACP said, okay, we'll just register our corporation. And Alabama said, no, we're gonna bring a lawsuit against you to shut you down. And not only that, but as part of the discovery in this bogus lawsuit, we are going to uh, issue a discovery request for all your members' names. And there's obviously a good reason why the NAACP in Alabama in 1956 does not want to give its members names. Unfortunately, um, the judge at the state court in the case, he actually would later be the judge who presided over New York Times v. Sullivan before he was overturned. Oh, right. uh, he was a white supremacist. And I can say that he wrote a newspaper column saying, I speak for the white race. Um, and very, I mean, he, he had- and presumptuous. Yes. Uh, and so he ruled in favor of Alabama. And this went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in a unanimous ruling, the Supreme Court said, no, there's a very good reason to keep the NAACP members anonymous. And then a few years later, this is how it gets to speech. There was a civil rights activist in uh, Los Angeles named Manuel Talley who 
was distributing pamphlets uh, in Los Angeles to boycott a supermarket that was dis supporting discriminatory companies. And um, there was a local ordinance that he was arrested for saying that you must uh, include the name of the person on a pamphlet. And he said, the supermarket doesn't include its name on its pamphlet, <laughs> right. so why should I? And he, had, he was ruled against in the state level, hmm. goes up to the Supreme Court, and in a 7-2 opinion, the court says those same values for NAACP uh, cases apply here to speech. And what, what I really want to drive home is that anonymity, it's framed in the First Amendment, but so much of it really comes down to the fear of persecution of, uh, of groups that are marginalized. And I think we see this carry on to this day. Right. Yeah, uh, which seems like a, a great point to, uh, to turn to Asane. Um, you've written uh, very compellingly about uh, why you choose to uh, write under a pseudonym. What, what are the, some of the, um, the modern ways in which uh, anonymity is, is critical to? Uh, yeah. Thank you, first right, of all, for having me. And um, thanks, Jeff, for that outline. It's always fascinating to get this sort of um, lesson in history on this as well. Um, so when it comes to my work, it's also imperative to show that some, some of the um, frames that show the need for anonymity always like frame it around descendants of political activists and so on. But oftentimes, it's just people trying to exist. Uh, in contexts that make it difficult for them to exist. Um, uh, for example, in my research, we're looking at contexts where existing whilst um, being LGBTQ and queer in itself is a crime. And um, there are systems structurally, legally, that provide for the persecution and prosecution and arrest. So the ability to be anonymous or have some sort of framework around pseudonyms, security frameworks, uh, not only provides for safety, but provides for community, to continue to be part of a community, to meet, to fall in love, um, all the basics that other folks might take um, as like a granted. So um, a lot of the folks I do research around wouldn't really identify as activists, for example. Uh, and if I give a little bit of a background of some of the cases I'm talking about is, for example, focus countries of mine tend to be the Middle East and North Africa. These cases are not unique just to the Middle East and North Africa. It's just my mandate of where my research is and capacity base of how much I can do. But um, in like 2016, 2015, cases started coming out that in Egypt, um, Egyptian police were using things like dating apps and other communication tools to identify and entrap folks who were queer. So um, making fake profiles, finding them, uh, making um, dates in specific locations, and then prosecuting them. And in these prosecutions, um, that I've been studying for this uh, report that's coming out soon around digital evidence. Part of the thing that the um, prosecuting teams try and really firmly show is the sort of um, identity of individuals. So if we're talking about the need for anonymity online, like it's the baseline, because when it comes to these cases, 
so much is being done to prove the connection between, um, let's say, uh, the in Trapper's account, the screenshots of profiles that are being taken. We're okay. Yeah, um, and the sort of the case that's being prosecuted. So. Um, when it comes to anonymity and having that sort of privacy, the layers to it are even more than just names and real names. In these cases, I've seen court files where um, police are sort of triangulating ISP phone numbers to the real name, to the phone number in the case file, to the chat logs with the police officer to prove that this is the conversation that's happening to prosecute these individuals. So, Whenever I'm talking about anonymity in these contexts, um, it's, it's, for me, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult one because if we're talking about the, like the base core of this, every other element of protection and security here comes under scrutiny and is kind of being um, diminished from like the base level because we need far more than that in these cases. Like having the option to be anonymous, like now, is just one thing having the option to ensure the sort of backlog of data and so on is also protected is another thing. Um, and personally, for me, it's meant that I can carry on my work and continue to do the sort of um, mission researches that I need to do in different contexts and protecting folks in my network and family. And it becomes quite frustrating where the same sort of um, let's say, structures and governments and so on that would protect the type of work I'm doing in the countries that I'm doing would also push for um, policies and procedures that would risk me while I'm doing it. You know, it, it's, it's always been an interesting counterpoint. But I, I think me and Jeff having this conversation, it's always been interesting to see how this is evolving, not just in the countries that I am working in, but it's uh, in the US, in Europe, and the conversation continues and how that balances out um, in the context I'm in. I wonder like, how you're seeing this evolving between the US and Europe as well, like the push to remove anonymity online, however they try and implement that. Yeah, so the, the, that's a really great question, and it is one of the places where we're actually, uh, I, I'd say, in a better position than Europe, um, because, I, well, Europe and the, the UK, I would say, is particularly in a dangerous position when it comes to anonymity, uh, crackdowns on anonymity. Um, there was recently a call to, uh, there are numerous calls in the UK to uh, impose some sort of real name requirements. Um, and they're not really clear as to exactly what they want to do. I think there is a distinction between requiring people to register under their real names and requiring people to operate under their real names. But I don't think it's a huge <laughs> gap between the two, uh, especially if you're in a jurisdiction that has very little uh, protections for, for the government or someone else getting the data. I think in the United States, th there's been some calls. Um, there's been one bill proposed basically that just says if a social media provider wants to uh, get 230 protections, it all comes back to section 230, um, that they have to verify the identity 
of people, but it doesn't. It also doesn't really go into specifics about how how do you verify? Do they have to operate under it, or do they just have to have it on file? I think both are equally problematic from a First Amendment perspective. Um, the courts haven't had that much of an occasion to rule on it under the First Amendment. The closest would be uh, there have been a few laws involving requiring um, people on sex offender registries to uh, provide the police with uh, their social, their their online identifiers. And um, the courts have had mixed rulings um, to the extent that those identifiers are released to the public. The courts are much more likely to say that's a First Amendment violation, but there have been at least one appellate court ruling saying that if it's just giving it to the police, they are, the laws do survive First Amendment scrutiny. So, uh, but I still think the United States, particularly because of the unique composition of the support for anonymous speech um, on the Supreme Court, um, I think we're in a better place. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would say that still, I, I don't know some of the, just, the newer justices, but uh, Justice Thomas has actually been the most uh, ardent supporter of First Amendment anonymous speech protections, um, far more vocal than so, some of the liberal justices for very different reasons. Um, he has written extensively saying, you know, I, I don't care about the history of anonymous speech. What I care about is what did freedom of speech and the press mean at the time of founding, because that's his thing, that's what he does. Um, and uh, he said at that time, so much of our discourse was done under pseudonyms. So I can't conceive of freedom of speech in the press being anything other than, uh, than protecting anonymous and pseudonymous speech. Mm. They were all heavy encryption users too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I mean, Hamilton, I, in the book I read about Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, they actually used Cypher to uh, transmit the Federalist Papers and conceal their names, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, for me it's also really interesting because a lot of these um, calls in Europe, especially, I mean, are very, I think maybe tactically quite vague about how it would be mm. implemented because it's very hard to implement. We've seen it in other contexts where these laws have been passed and it's just not reached any sort of implementation like um, in places like Iran and so on. It's just meant increased arrests mm. rather than an ability to actually stop anonymous accounts because when people are very savvy too, this takes a lot of infrastructure to be able to do that. And for me, the other side, which is interesting for me with your work too, is like with the UK and um, other jurisdictions trying to push this, it becomes a lot about the liability placed on the companies themselves. And I've seen in my work over and over again when these sort of liabilities uh, and the sort of risks um, for companies come into play, the sort of implementation becomes a question of how the private entity protects itself in that context. Of course, it, it's, it's a private company. There may be good intention folks inside each company. There always is, but essentially the company is going to look after its own interests. And when there is this high risk of, um, uh, let's say, different types of sanctions or fines and so on, the most vulnerable users often get bulldozed in this context, like 
So we've seen things like sanctions policies in places like Iran, where there is an exemption from the US that allows for communication tools and circumvention tools to be um, sold inside the country so civilians can use it. But companies over-comply. The incentive is to over-comply, which has meant that access to even circumvention tools and VPNs and things like that have been fully blocked. So I think often people envisage this sort of attempt to keep corporations and companies accountable through these frameworks, um, whether it's through 230, like um, removing 330. I think they, they imagine it as being a lot more effective than it is. The reality is they have really great legal teams and frameworks. And it won't be framed in a way that's protecting the folks that it's supposed to protect. And we've seen it over and over again, as we had discussed previously around foster and other sort of um, contexts where- For the, for the folks uh, sorry, listening yes. who may not know what FOSTA is. Uh, I'll, I'll pass it on to you to do the FOSTA. But um, the folks mostly at the margins, whether it's sex workers, whether it's like folks in countries where revenue isn't the biggest incentive for the country, whether it's like the biggest, um, uh, the, uh, the folks who are like, with refugees, migrants, and so on, who aren't the primary um, revenue bringers or like focus of a company, they get thrown off as fast as possible. And there isn't that much data to prove that any of this has led to any protection of the framed um, groups that it is supposed to protect. So I often get lost in these conversations where people think somehow like removing 230 or um, similar um, uh, sort of policies or legislations that bring around huge liability is going to create this safety net for everyone. It's not been the case so far. And yes, if 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 you could give folks um, the foster background, that would be amazing. Sure. Again, I'll I'll just also add that I mean we have a test case of this with Facebook. Right. I mean, Facebook has long had a real name policy that it, I I think that it's well intentioned. But I think that I, I I don't think after reviewing the cases where people have been kicked off and people have had to justify give various justifications, I don't think that it serves the public interest. And I think that that can be a learning experience when we get these proposals saying, oh, let's just make that required of all platforms, or let's condition 230 on someone giving their driver's license. Or what, I mean, I, I think the marginalized groups will be further marginalized. And I think that's really a very real risk. Um, for FOSTA, this is something uh, that it really emerged from a uh, 2016 court case involving Backpage, which is now offline, that was a uh, cla online classified section that had a number of uses. Uh, it was known to be used by uh, people who were sex trafficking. And there was a lawsuit against Backpage by three women who were trafficked on Backpage at the, when they were 15 years old. Um, it was a, I've read through all the case files. It's a devastating case. It's just, it's, it's hard to get through those court documents. Um, they sued, it goes up to the First Circuit and the, I, I think the first line is something like, this is a hard case. Um, and they say, that these are the allegations. Um, and the judges pretty much say, we wish we could do something, but there's this law called Section 230. 
and we think Congress should think about rewriting it. And that got attention. There was a documentary about some of the plaintiffs um, that uh, got a lot of attention, and it, then Congress got involved, and they proposed a variety of different iterations of SESTA and FOSTA, um, some which were better than others, some which were more narrowly tailored, um, others were not. I'd say the, the big platforms did not have a very cohesive public relations strategy um, to deal with this because they had kind of viewed Section 230 as this written in stone and it wasn't going to change. Uh, there were, they, I, I don't think they handled it very well, um, so they were largely shut out until the end. And the result was a law that I've read dozens of times and parts of it, I cannot tell you how it works because <clears throat> it's like different knowledge standards and courts are getting confused about it also because it, it, it's, just, it, it's, not, it's not clear what they create new cause of action, but it's not exempt from 230. Uh, but the big problem, I think, stepping back is it does not just um, address sex trafficking. It also um, addresses sex work, and it has substantially reduced uh, online safe, safety for uh, sex workers. And uh, the, I mean, this is, we, we've heard complaints from advocates as well as law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we've seen a lot of reduction in platforms. Craigslist, for example, uh, eliminated its uh, personals section altogether right after this was passed. Uh, and the whole irony of it is that Backpage ends up getting shut down a few days before FOSTA is signed into law because there's always been an exception in Section 230 for federal criminal law. So the FBI seized Backpage. Uh, now there's the criminal case that's going on uh, about on the merits there. But I mean, the, the entire point was this FOSTA wasn't even necessary to address um, the problem that started this, which was the Backpage case. Yeah, and I, I feel like there are certain groups like Hacking Hustling and so on run by sex workers uh, who are focusing on the digital issues who highlight exactly how this, in effect, one, has not really led to much protection of victims of trafficking, but two, has led to, as you mentioned, increased um, risks for sex workers because they're being thrown off different platforms. Um, fintech platforms or financial technologies um, that would provide uh, a way for sex workers to make an income, offering sex workers off repeatedly, the sort of safer places for them to even be able to work, or pushing them off. So like this context that it was created um, with a certain group in mind, not only did it really not protect the folks that it was intended to protect, but it really created this um, huge risk for this marginalized group, and it reverberated in other contexts as well. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard for me to see how this like new um, revamped push around anonymity is going to turn up, even when I'm doing a lot of my work when it comes to identifying the documentation of what's happening in these cases, bringing out the data, talking to the companies themselves about recommendations of what should be done to create um, necessary, safer spaces for folks um, who can who need these tools to have community to like um, to exist. Because the question is never um, 
okay, the police are using something, their grinder, let's ban grinder. That's not a, a situation that we would ever land on because it, it's necessary. Um, that and other similar apps are necessary, but it's like the question of how to be a bit more, um, uh, quote-unquote, creative, uh, a bit more uh, uh, kind of intentional about the way we want to look at these technologies, uh, whether it's around accountability and responsibility. A lot of my work, I talk about the fact that we're documenting these cases and these um, abuses that are happening, and the companies are responsible to respond. However, the way at least our teams and I have like pushed around the responsibility isn't around um, the sort of uh, legal liabilities, because often they don't serve the folks we're talking about is around providing them with the tools and protections they need on the app. And the lawyers I talk to, the community members I talk to, often come up with the same sort of recommendations around um, pins, disappearing messages, um, uh, panic buttons, direct line of communications between lawyers and the companies, so if something else. But I've had pushback on some of the most basic recommendations to get implemented not from the companies themselves but because it's kind of lumped up um, with this context of if you provide more discretion and anonymity on these tools you're risking folks like um, children and other um, groups without a lot of data to back that whereas there is um, like so many different ways, uh, children's organizations uh, have been asking for more support structurally uh, around what's happening in these cases when it comes to cases of abuse, like racial abuse online. Um, I've seen in the UK and other places a jump towards we need to ban anonymous accounts online, whereas like, when are we going to actually talk about the structural and institutional layers that allow for this abuse online and most of the accounts are public. So um, it's been really difficult and I foresee more difficulty. Recently some changes came in and for these cases I've been working on. Uh, and I guess, I, I don't know, the, the note I would love to like discuss is like how do we highlight that there is this balance about individuals and communities at risk especially when um, there's such a emotive dialogue, dialogue going on about this issue right now internationally and nationally. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's hard because there, I mean, to be clear, there are some bad uses of yep. anonymous speech. There are bad uses of speech with your real name, bad uses online, bad uses offline. I mean, that's kind of the world we live in. And I think you're right, there's not, any compelling evidence that anonymity and pseudonymity are uh, worse are, are used in a worse way. I mean, I think some people superficially might look at it and say, yeah, that's the, that's the case. Um, but when you dig deep into the cases, you think both, well, anonymity is not what's really driving this. And even if you had some sort of law it's probably going to get circumvented by the worst actors and the people yes. it's going to affect are the people who just want to comply with the law and often really have a valid need to yep. be anonymous. There are so many of them. I mean, I write in, in my book, I spend a chapter writing 
about uh, someone who got one of the largest uh, cyber stalking related yeah. um, sentences, uh, more than 17 years. It was, it's a horrific case. Um, and he's a computer, he has a computer science degree and he, he used all, people kind of suspected it was him, but he was able to at least for about a year prevent uh, being caught because he was able to use enough Tor on top of VPNs, et cetera. Um, and I, I mean, at first you think, okay, well, this is a case to say, let's get rid of anonymity. But then I think, would that really matter for him? Because he, I mean, he, he was really dedicated to this. Um, similarly for, I, I write, I have a chapter about Tor and I write about all the good uses of Tor. I also look at cases involving Playpen, which was a child sex abuse material site. But I, when you go deep on these cases, they're one, one of the people who got a very uh, long sentence. He, when the police investigated, found that he had been uh, distributing and receiving child sex abuse material since the early 2000s. Uh, this was not using Tor. This wasn't using Onion sites. Um, so there are much deeper problems there that um, it, it's easy to just sort of, I mean, it's the same with the 230 debate. It's easy to just say, oh, the problem's anonymity. Let's, if we get rid of anonymity, everyone becomes good. Yeah. Um, and that, that I, I, I wish that if that were the case, I would support it. Right, but exactly. that's not going to happen. And it, it's frustrating because I, I think part of it is the policymaking yep. arena where they want quick and easy. It's like with Section 230, oh, let's just create health misinformation laws. It's like, how could that be misused? It's, um, yeah. So it occurs to me, the one thing, um, maybe I'm jumping back a little bit, it occurs to me that one thing both of you brought out um, was the way anonymity is kind of connected to associational rights and to the creation of community. Um, and I think there's a natural tendency to think of anonymous, uh, anonymous speech and freedom of speech as being about you know, the individual's right to express their speech as opposed to um, you know, the original legal uh, basis, which has, in a sense, the right to associate in a certain way, um, right, to create a community. But it also occurs to me that, that if, if you're, you're, um, you frame this around associations or communities more than just individual speech, um, then in a sense, not necessarily anonymity, but pseudonymity pseudonymity that becomes more important because if, I'm, if it's just me speaking, I can be anonymous. If we're trying to create a community, we need some kind of persistent identifiers um, so that, that we can speak in a way that's not connected to our external identities. Um, but that also sort of creates additional difficulties because that's another anchor um, to, uh, right. So any, it's right, it's hard to anonymize anything that's a persistent identifier. Mm -hmm. um, over time, so I wonder. I don't want to derail if uh, uh, if that's sort of not where you guys were going, but um, but the sort of the tension between that the difference between pseudonymity and anonymity, and, and how that creates additional challenges. Uh, one thing, I mean, is is a little bit um, uh, further than that. In some of my research, it was really interesting in like the beginning stages where I was asking um, folks in Iran. Egypt and Lebanon that we, we were doing research around and surveying like what do you want to see on the apps and what do you want to provide about yourself on the apps and 
it was like it's 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 so uh, natural and a way of like folks using different technology, especially dating apps in itself. Of everybody wanted to remain anonymous, but they wanted a lot of information about the other person, which is like a, you know, for someone like me. Yes, it makes you um, giggle a little bit, but that's the challenge. Like, how do we provide that, right? Um, how do we provide this element, especially in part of like creating community in a context where folks are trying to meet someone in such an intimate context? Um, and there is this tension that comes from it, but there are different existing models that show there are ways to create certain levels of trust mm. without it being um, intrusive and like um, outing people's identities. Like uh, in that um, uh, piece I'd written, I highlighted the work of Ahwa, this um, platform um, created for the same community, um, queer communities in Mino, which was around like um, gamification, so increasing trust based on the activity of the individual, people that knew certain individuals, like different layers of it um, that created this level of like color-based gamification. So um, it was really interesting. There were certain apps such as um, Planet Romeo that had versions of this where there was uh, you could flag if you've met someone or if you know someone as trusted. So instead of like the uh, uh, sort of blue star you get on social media, it was more of like a trust one. All of these have flaws in it themselves. Um, the question for us has always been that um, we're not going to continue to um, look at this as a necessity for verification, mm -hmm. which is what often when people look at work like mine would push for, they were like, oh, if there's law enforcement officers or different um, sort of actors here making fake accounts on these um, tools and want to arrest people, you should verify them. No, because that's going to harm the folks that we're trying to protect more. The question is, how do we start creating research and work to find alternative ways where pseudonymity, where sort of building community, where this sort of creating trust can still exist without it being um, in a context where everybody has to provide every single piece of information about themselves that can eventually be used against them. So it hasn't been answered yet, but people are working on it. And to try and increase interest in this as a necessity because currently what is being pushed for and what we're seeing is just going in a really bad direction. I wish it would go in a direction of, hey, we should actually start thinking about more creative ways of dealing with this. We should think about, you know, one of the things I am doing with my current fellowship is like this um, framework I'm currently calling, might change, design from the margins is like, how do we design technology or policy around those most impacted that will benefit like it's a good um, market for how it will benefit the rest of society when you're protecting those most at the margins. And if you're creating some more um, creative, quote unquote creative, but uh, well-researched methodologies for these things, there's so many ways we could do this that um, just require a bit more funding, a little bit more resources and focus rather than the knee-jerk versions of how we're looking at it right now. Like you said, there's loads of ways that speech online or activities online have been harmful, but we can come up with better ways of dealing with it than to kind of have the really easy versions of less banner anonymity online, which never works anyway. <laughs>
So the thing is, if I can kind of see if, if you would, would kind of agree with this, maybe way of encapsulating that is that you have this sort of problem in, in, in some of these online spaces like dating apps, um, especially for sort of queer communities and regions where that's not popular, um, where there's a sort of dilemma of, well, it's, it's, it's dangerous for me to engage with you without knowing something about you. Um, but it's also dangerous for me to disclose too much about myself, so we kind of have a, a sort of a first mover problem. Um, but that, and maybe you're suggesting, but the issue there is not really identity, the issue is trust. And if you, if you can build mechanisms for trust that don't rely on identity, that the, the dilemma sort of dissolves, is that? One thing I want to point out here is um, also, this, this, is, this is the case for a lot of like, um, act marginalized communities in very different contexts. People have very much learned how to stay safe in contexts that haven't provided for their safety. Like some of the folks I know that are the most um, tech savvy and um, in incredibly inventive in uh, staying safe online and so on are sex workers, for example, because they had to provide that for themselves. Queer communities in these contexts that I work in have many ways of keeping themselves safe. So for me, it's always like, why aren't we kind of tapping into the knowledge that already exists, how people are already navigating these things to understand the ways we could potentially find better pathways to um, provide for safety in this trust element and that doesn't require um, a knee-jerk policy of just banning the accounts or creating verification processes. It's not going to be easy, so it's not like if we do that, it'll, it'll lead to a perfect solution, mainly because most companies and most platforms and stuff have a different idea of how this should be done too. And, um, but for me, I think it is that we really need to think deeper and also engage the folks who are already doing this themselves and ask those questions of, okay, how do we provide for the methods you're already using and provide better tools for that rather than, well, here's a thing we've just decided on. You should do this. So it's hard for me to say whether it'll be solved that way, but not enough focus has been put on that method for us to see whether it won't be or it will be. It's just, I wish um, there was more power put into the context of how folks already know what they need, especially in these contexts, and kind of frame the a little bit better around those things. I, I guess there's less political will around that than what's happening right now, as, as you know. I wonder actually if, um, because I think we've, we've heard a, a couple of different pictures of, of a sort of background question here, which is how feasible is it for a kind of normal person to remain anonymous or pseudonymous um, in the modern era. You talked about uh, Junius using right, sort of proxies for handwriting and dead drops, um, which apparently was effective enough that we still are not sure um, who it was. On the other hand, you talked about um, right, some very sophisticated people with computer science degrees who were using you know, all these technologies to sort of better put our, but the, 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 right, the setup was then they're in jail now. Um, so I guess not that effective. Um, I feel like there's a sense that, maybe there's a popular sense that, um, you know, sort of whatever the law is, 
the technology now makes it possible for the very sophisticated to be um, sort of hyper anonymous, but for kind of normal people, um, we are sort of so thoroughly fingerprinted, uh, and it leaves so many breadcrumb trails um, that it's almost a sort of a, a futile uh, endeavor. And I'm just curious what, what both of you, especially as someone who is um, actively kind of engaged in um, protecting uh, pseudonymity, you know, what's your sense of how feasible it is for normal people? I'll go yeah, yeah, I mean, I, in the book I write about the quirks really have recognized that anonymity is not binary, that, and, and I call it anonymity empowerment. So they, they don't, it's very difficult, especially now, to be 100% anonymous, but you can at least protect certain identifying information, at least from certain people for a certain amount of time. Um, so if I were to go on an anonymous bulletin board that didn't log IP addresses and start posting things about my life, there might be enough details that I might not even realize that someone could say, oh, well, he, I mean, I, I have a commute from Arlington to Annapolis, uh, which is a crazy commute. And I, I think there's probably not all that many people there. So if I wrote, hey, I have a commute from Arlington to Annapolis, that at least narrows down the field of people who are posting, um, but the Supreme Court has recognized that uh, you can protect identifying information even if there is a way to figure out who you are. There was a case in the late 90s where there was a Colorado law that required door-to-door -door signature gatherers for ballot initiatives to wear name badges. Uh, no, this came oh, no. a few years after. This okay. is Buckley. Uh, oh, oh the, Buckley. Right. So this was, um, and the Colorado justified it. This was after McIntyre, where they sort of reaffirmed this anonymity right. And Colorado said, well, this is okay because the people have their faces displayed. So it's fine to require them to wear badges that say their name because they're already showing their faces. And what the Supreme Court said is, yeah, they might be recognizable, but the First Amendment protects their ability to say, I don't want to disclose my name, even if I'm disclosing my face. Uh, on the flip side, there have been courts that have found that anti-mask laws, which say you can't wear masks in public places, that those are uh, unconstitutional because, uh, as applied to the Ku Klux Klan, for example. So it, there, there's this idea that, okay, we're not gonna necessarily have perfect anonymity, and especially in the online environment, I mean, Website. There are some websites that don't log IP addresses. Many do. Um, you could, but you could be using Tor or VPN. Uh, the person in that harassment case I was talking about, he, the way he was identified was his VPN kept logs. Mm -hmm. um, right. And as, as a friend <laughs> likes to say, a VPN is just another ISP. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, I, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, eventually people often will get caught, but that's not a re. That's not a reason to say, well, we we don't we won't protect it because um, for I mean where it comes up most often in courts are subpoenas, um, and I write a lot about in the late '90s what happened was um, people were going to Yahoo Finance and posting about uh, their employers being bad companies, and uh, this infuriated the executives because they had never really been subject to public criticism from lowly employees. They've been subject maybe to business journalists criticizing them, but um, they, so they would sue, file these really bogus defamation or trade secrets lawsuits. And as part of that, they'd subpoena their IP address from Yahoo 
then do a second subpoena to the ISP. And the courts finally stepped in and said, hey, you, you've got to have a really strong case to be able to do that. Um, so even when someone is traceable, there, there is a First Amendment value in at least not using the legal system uh, to unmask them. Now, the problem, and I tackled this in the last part of my book, is, I mean, the First Amendment, despite what a lot of people in the Section 230 debate say, the First Amendment restricts government action. It doesn't restrict private action. And uh, there's a whole lot of really sensitive identifying information that companies have about us that can identify us. And that's the First Amendment's not going to protect that. We need a privacy law that restricts the ability to uh, really, in often dangerous ways, uh, identify people. So this is actually, um, uh, Catherine Strandberg is fond of making the point that um, uh, sort of the modern equivalent of the NAACP membership list would be um, all of the internet metadata that yeah. would um, identify people as members of you know, a listserv or an online forum or any number of other kinds of, of ad hoc groups, but we have a, a sort of Fourth Amendment doctrine presumption, well, that that data is unprotected, available via a subpoena, yeah. Um, on a very low standard, not particularly, you know, not particularly constitutionally protected, even though it seems fairly clearly like the, the sort of the direct corollary of um, the associational information that was um, that was found to be protected in, in NAACP. Um, I wonder, I guess, do either of you think, you know, um, is this is this a case for rethinking, maybe in first rather than fourth amendment terms, how we protect? metadata, um, or is it a mistake to focus too much on you know, the, sort of the legal structure as opposed to the technical architectures um, that protect that, that, kind of, that kind of metadata? I think we're going also back to part of the initial question as well. It's like it's very hard to protect anonymity as it is. Like, even in my case, if someone wanted to go deep, it, it's very hard. But there are layers to it, of the layers of what you need protected in what scenarios. Um, so the metadata stuff does become very important when it comes to like very sophisticated and technical aspects of these identifiers, it, depending on who is trying to identify whom. Uh, uh, if it's, for example, in the US context, and the, if certain groups uh, I, I remember there were certain like, university organizing groups, like BLM groups, whose the same sort of n names on their staffs was trying to, um, there were different like uh, sort of law enforcement uh, efforts to try and identify their names. It's easy to, to get that information. Um, and in those contexts, the metadata becomes really important to try and protect. In other cases, in like the con context I am working on, the way folks are identified is a lot more manual. It's like very traditional police methodologies. They don't even need to go into that sort of sophisticated framework to do that. And you see that over and over again in communities with less protection here. You, you can see it with like undocumented and refugee and migrant communities and the way ICE works. Um, the sort of metadata becomes important, but also like there's just very manual methods of like stop and search and profiling that happens that, um, or like online um, sort of surveillance or basic levels of it and finding the networks and stuff where 
lay basic layers of anonymity become just as fundamental as the metadata side of it. So for me, um, I think two sides of it become, but sometimes the conversation in my field as well becomes uh, really focused in on the very sophisticated elements of um, gathering data and information and surveillance, whereas like sort of manual methods of it where this conversation around anonymity um, becomes so uh, important get lost in the debate a little bit and I'm hoping with some of like the upcoming report and stuff I can like really encourage folks to think about the fact that sometimes in some contexts it's much easier to identify folks um, without sophisticated technologies and therefore we need these base levels of protection when we're talking about being able to talk pseudonymously online that's the basics <laughs> like like encryption, anonymity, that's the basics. We need a lot more if we're trying to protect the folks that we want to protect. But um, yeah, uh, the sort of legal frameworks around protect protecting data also becomes really important. But I, I think my point here is that, that kind of more basic levels of it shouldn't get lost in the process. Yeah, and you mentioned the Fourth Amendment. And I mean, the in sort of government investigations, whether it's a grand jury subpoena or criminal investigation or even an administrative agency uh, investigation, the courts generally uh, for unmasking online posters apply a much lower First Amendment standard uh, than, than they would in a civil defamation lawsuit. Um, but the problem is the Fourth Amendment is not a great backdrop for the reasons you discussed. I was kind of hopeful post-Carpenter that that would change, um, but that has not changed for IP address data. Uh, the courts have, uh, there have been a number of even appellate court opinions that say no, Carpenter, that the I, an IP address or subscriber data is very different than cell site location information. Right. It's ironic because the, right, the sort of the British cases that we sort of point to as the kind of foundation of the Fourth Amendment are all essentially all about, right, rooting out anonymous speakers, um, the North Britain 45 and all that. Um, so there was a question, so I noticed we have a, a, a couple of questions um, and they're all from anonymous people this time. So that <laughs> seems totally, um, nice. totally appropriate. Um, I think this is, this is probably a, a question for, uh, for Jeff or Professor Kothoff is, um, is, there a legal, is there a legal distinction between pseudonymity and anonymity? Are those treated legally different in any way and, and what what would you envision as a, as as a sort of statutory amendment that would that would leave those uh, better situated? So legally, there's not a difference for the, like the First Amendment protections. They've applied equally to pseudonymous speech uh, and, and and anonymity. So uh, I mean, in an ideal world, we're not going to get into passing statutes about <laughs> anonymity because I, I think that would only be right. uh, be, be dangerous. It's like, it's like what you've learned from two thirty is if the status quo is sort of okay, don't uh, yeah. don't tinker yeah, with it. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Yep. Um, so I also someone sort of curious about how um, so how so how I guess what kind of attacks I don't mean specifically but what kind of de-identification attacks um, the communities that you're um, concerned about face. I'll give you an example. Uh, about two years ago now. There was, so outside the law enforcement context, there was a um, social media influencer who 
for one reason or another decided that um, she wanted to give a um, training on how folks could go on these different apps, find the profiles, um, take screenshots and put them on Facebook. So it's like a, this was a Morocco outing campaign. And um, hundreds and hundreds of folks and so this wasn't even like the government nope. doing no. this. This was terrible human beings. Yeah, okay. for whatever reason, um, it took off. And in that context in Morocco, most of um, the community had, had been doing fine. Like the laws existed, but nothing was really happening. Societally, it was okay. But this, this sort of case came in and um, sort of it was this mass outing that happened. And... Folks like myself and other rapid responders had to like communicate directly with the companies to try and um, get all of these pages removed. So when this sort of um, context where the profiles were being all outed online, often a link to people recognizing a certain person and then the names being linked and their whole identity, it was quite tragic, even though we were doing um, rapid response to get as much removed as possible and this person's account removed, it had devastating consequences. People were fired, people were kicked out of their houses, there were suicides, um, two, at least two, two suicide attempts and one person who lost their life. So um, that's one version of it, right? The sort of unmasking that we're talking about. The other sort of versions of it is like the sort of um, uh, legal, like, quote unquote, legal versions of it in context where it allows for uh, law enforcement or their contracted informants and so on to um, sort of surveil and identify individuals and bring them into courts. Um, and it's interesting because I think if there was a lower, even lower level of um, uh, ability for folks to be uh, anonymous online, these same factions would use it immediately to identify folks. And like, like I mentioned with the ISPs and so on, the kind of the triangulation of data to prove the identity of an individual and to a specific profile would, like if they could just get access to all of that information easily from companies, they would immediately. They just kind of don't need to. There's so many different layers of it. With me, it would be, um, I guess, links to the type of work I'm doing, the communities I'm working with, if outside my own context, if um, something were to happen, the whole networks that have worked with me would be sort of out similarly in the type of work. There's so many different layers of it, so the sort of protections that are necessary are also complex and um, uh, multi-layered. This is why I keep kind of pushing this concept that this is, we're talking about the baseline of what's needed in these contexts. So yeah, I think I, I gave you a taste of some of the different things that could happen. I mean, it, it's always very depressing thinking about it, but I, I do want to land on the fact that um, communities like the queer communities and the other communities we've been discussing are very resilient, very creative, and continuously um, growing and expanding. So it's not all dire, but it, it is part of our responsibility, whether it's someone like me as an advocate and researcher or companies and so on, to 
be thinking about it in like a broader, more creative way to provide the sort of necessary support outside some of the conversations I'm hearing these days that are really <laughs> lowering my spirits around this stuff. I, I'm okay. curious how, how, um, how responsive were the companies? In these contexts? Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, depends on which company. Some of them are very responsive. Some of them are less responsive. Some of my favorite changes that have come about have been, for example, like my favorite cases have been with Grindr. Um, they did have to respond because so much of it was happening with their app in particular. But also there were one or two, a few individuals on the inside that really wanted to ensure some changes did happen. For example, in our research, um, folks were saying, we want to continue to use the app. But how do we hide the app in plain sight when it comes to, um, uh, let's say, uh, border police or army checks? It's because the grinder symbol in itself is so recognizable. And our technologists and our teams, and actually the recommendation itself came from folks in Lebanon in different contexts, like, how do you cloak the app in itself so it adds a layer of security? Um, long story short, now if you look on Grindr, you can turn it into a calculator or a calendar or, and you know, and when we're talking about designing for those folks most impacted, this thing came about because the case study was about Syrian queer refugees in Lebanon. You can't get more nuanced than that at this context. Everybody wants this feature. Now it's globally free. And then they brought in things like disappearing messages and blocking screenshots and so on. And it's available everywhere, but not all companies were that responsive. Some of the other ones are more and more responsive. The problem is um, not everyone has the amount of information and data we have. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit difficult to say this, this changes happen in all contexts, but um, some of them weren't very responsive. Some of them didn't even accept that these cases were happening. It's very hard and annoying. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it really depends. And it, it goes back to this context of where their user base and their priorities lie. So, yeah, we can probably talk about that more off stage. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a, a this interesting um, one of the, the sort of difficulties now is um, right the business model for so many technology companies is monetizing data yep. one way or another and and right a lot of sort of best practices around around privacy in general but anonymity in particular um, involve right a sort of level of of Ulysses lashing himself to the mast and not um, not. Uh, choosing to collect and store um, all the data they might, and so in a sense, it's like interesting. Well, some companies are prepared to um, to take that step, and others others less so. Um, but right, the more that data is is compiled, um, the more difficult it is to you know have any assurance that um, you can't be de-anonymized. Um, is there? I mean, do you send? Do you sense uh, that that's? I just assume that the book you're writing is going to turn into um, some kind of <laughs> massive culture war thing. Um, so, I mean, is is that where um, the next sort of fight around uh, 
uh, around anonymity is, so to say the, the, the status of the kind of identifying uh, information, either, either legally or culturally? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that already a, a bit in the 230 debate because you're seeing people finally realize that changing Section 230 is not going to fix the internet. And I think the debate has died down a little bit this year compared to last year in terms of the focus on, I mean, the fact that 230 was at presidential campaign rallies is just mind blowing that anyone would mention that. That was something that I couldn't even get academic publishers to get interested in in 2016. So in 2020, uh, so so I, I feel like there's been a recognition that you know there's the First Amendment and there's other reasons why platforms both moderate and don't moderate. Um, so we've started to see some of some folks say, okay, well the real issue is let's have the users responsible or the, the speakers responsible. So let's figure out a way to make them authenticate themselves. And I, there's not been any really deep dive yet into, um, well, how do you do that? And I mean, what, what, what are the harms and will you get the bad actors? Um, so so I, I fear that we're, we're starting to see that. I mean, I, I, as much as I want to sell books, I don't want that to be the reason. Um, but I also think that one thing we haven't discussed as much, and this happens, this is more for certain cases. We, every, every so often we see a public official or public figure get unmasked for saying stuff that's not all that kind about other people on social media, whether it's a government official or, uh, or, or it can really be hateful stuff and not just uncivil. And I, when you look at these cases, these often are people who have a lot of access to information, and you would think they understand the risks of doing that uh, in 2021, but they repeatedly we see people who, I think there's a risk perception issue also, people who might assume they're more anonymous than they actually are. Um, and I, so I think part of the issue is pe people don't necessarily have a good understanding of how easy it is for them to be unmasked. And I think that that's a big problem as well. I think there's one, I, I feel like I'll, I'll just be remiss if I don't at some point during this session bring it up. Um, uh, the, um, the case of the, of the Devin Nunes cow, um, which is an online Twitter account that sort of existed to mock uh, outgoing, uh, apparently Congressman Devin Nunes who, um, Related to a story about a family farm with cows, so this, this sort of satirical account posed as uh, Nunez's cow, um, and Nunez was so sort of incensed by this that he wanted to sue the the cow for defamation, and um, ultimately the the uh, Justice Department during the sort of Trump administration ended up trying to serve a subpoena on Twitter to identify the cow, um, and that's a case where Twitter ended up sort of pushing back and stalling that process until the change of administrations from the Biden administration sort of backed down. Um, but as it turns out, it would be fairly trivial. Um, and it's sort of surprising that this is a case where it really sure seems like um, the Justice Department was, was just sort of willing to help um, de-anonymize a political critic of a friendly congressman um, in order to assist him in a harassment lawsuit. Um, uh, and so it was sort of, I guess, fortunate that it didn't succeed because in the instance, Twitter, I guess, knew who that was 
and chose to push back when normally you would just sort of say, oh, DOJ wants this person's identity. Well, sure. Um, so that seems like an interesting case where a, a whole lot really turned on the kind of chance of a company kind of recognizing the stakes mm -hmm. of the situation and being willing to push back. When in most contexts, right, we don't expect the intermediary to have the kind of either the stake or the, um, or really even the knowledge that hey, this, this is a this is potentially inappropriate. Um, is it? I mean, to what extent is it? Is it a problem that we're kind of counting so much on um, these sort of intermediaries that don't particularly care about us to um, to do the right thing? Yeah, it's, I mean, some companies are really good about it. So Twitter is overall, in a lot of different cases, really good about advocating for its users. Anonymity, Glassdoor, uh, where people post reviews of employers, they get quite a few subpoenas, understandably, from angry employers, and they they fight those subpoenas. And they they do, I mean, they're not a huge, they're not like Facebook or Twitter size, and they devote substantial resources to doing it. Um, they're, but, so, I mean, a lot, you're right, a lot does depend on what the intermediaries do. I mean, Yahoo, in the late 90s, those sort of foundational cases, they were getting a ton of subpoenas, and for the first few years, they didn't even notify people that their that their information was being subpoenaed. So someone would find out after the subpoena is fulfilled. And now, the companies are at least better at notice. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there is a wide variety. But I'd say, um, as much flack as Twitter gets for a lot of things, it's uh, unanonymous speech. It's actually quite good. Yeah, it's interesting in um, some of the bilateral discussions I would have behind scenes with some of the companies, I would all, initially I would ask the question of like, what do you do when you get subpoenas from hmm. um, other jurisdictions where these cases exist? Um, and they never outside the US, or d depending on where they were jurisdictionally based, outside of that context, they, the, the smaller ones I would talk to didn't really have a framework they would just say we would assess case by case basis of where the request is coming from and often we just refuse because we have no need to respond to these cases unless um, something in the sort of uh, context of where their base comes in. But it was always interesting for me because it was like, oh, it really does depend on when it comes to these uh, external subpoenas, who's looking at them and what decision they take. It seemed like, at least in my conversations, that they were taking a stance that usually they would just say no. But like, that's a lot of discretion there. <laughs> there's a lot of discretion there. But since, because I, I, I got the same response each time, and it seemed like that wasn't a big issue to look into, and all of the cases I've been looking at in this report that's coming, none of them indicate that any information had come from any of the companies, mainly because it wasn't necessary. Um, and, I, and I say if it was available to them, they would 100% use them, but it was, just wasn't necessary. But it is interesting for me that so much of it remains on like the, their discretion when it comes to these cases. But thankfully, most of them seem to have been good on that front so far, as far as I know. <laughs> um, so we have just a couple minutes left. Uh, uh... I think I've addressed a couple of I, well, the one thing someone I think this I assume this is a question related to Foster and Sesta, and someone was just sort of wondering how um, this is like how you know is it just that people aren't reading these things or uh, <laughs> uh, and and relying on staff to 
Um, and I don't understand the side, the consequences, but that's a little, a little, um, a little marginal and probably more of a rhetorical question. Um, so I guess I just want to, want to, because we only have a couple minutes to ask if, uh, if you have any kind of um, summative, sort of summing thoughts uh, uh, out, out of this conversation. Um, I think my summing thoughts will probably go back to this context of like, there is a space to think about these issues with better nuance and better creative frameworks. And we have enough historical, uh, legal and like evidentiary background to show that the way it's been dealt with up until now has just not been sufficient and a lot of folks have been harmed in the process. I think for me, I'm hoping, especially if the dialogues, whether in the US or in the UK or in Europe or in the different countries we all uh, working continue down a very bizarre path that more pushback is um, added to show that it, there are folks at the margins, at the peripheries that are really getting crushed. Uh, and there are ways to deal with these sort of situations in a more creative way that kind of benefits a lot of folks. I do want to land on the fact that we do have one, a prerogative to be thinking about these things differently. Uh, and um, also there is incentive because with like the case I said, for example, with the Grinder case, sometimes it leads to really cool uh, outcomes that we might not have envisaged. So I just want to land on this hopeful note that, yeah, let's um, hope that when these conversations continue and the importance of these things like anonymity are enforced, folks that get impacted most don't get pushed out of the conversations. Yeah, I, I guess I'm still kind of shaken from the whole two, past few years of Section 230 <laughs> that I do fear that, I, I mean, we had one thing we didn't discuss was that a recent one of the zillion Facebook hearings uh, there, uh, Senator Blumenthal asked um, a Facebook representative if they would commit to oh, ending Finsta, <laughs> um, and I, I've, and it was a big joke because the, uh, but but I, I think there was some a deeper problem there in saying, well, we don't want those fake accounts. We on, the only real account is with someone's name, and then think about the children. And um, I, I think it, it's important. I mean, think about online safety, but I think there are also a lot of very good reasons for having a Finsta, having uh, pseudonymous accounts. And I hope that just sort of the, so, so many of the issues that you've really discussed and uh, the impact on so many communities will be at the front and center of the debate. Uh, that's what I hope. Um, I, I'm <laughs> not terribly optimistic, just yeah. the way that things work here, but I, I do worry about the sort of knee-jerk reactions of anonymity is bad for kids, mm -hmm. so let, let's figure something out. Uh, I, I think that would really have some devastating uh, impacts on so many different groups. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean if the, the default is, of course, well, anonymity will prevent children from, uh, prevent parents from protecting their children, but in a sense, right, the worst situations are the one where the child needs anonymity from mm -hmm. to be protected from the parent. Um, just you know, hope not the majority of situations, but mm -hmm. um, but vital in, in when, when it does occur. Um, all right, we are we are I'm afraid uh, up against our our time limit. I'm really grateful to both of you. 
for um, taking time to uh, come and speak with us today. Um, and uh, to, of course, the audience for joining us. Um, we will uh, fade to black uh, for about 15 minutes while we uh, stretch our legs and take a break. But when we come back, we will have uh, what I hope will be a pretty, uh, a pretty exciting uh, demonstration of just how easy it is to hack devices on the Internet of Things. Um, so uh, stand up, take a bio break, uh, and, but come back to your screen in 15 minutes and, uh, and, and check it out. Um, thank you again. We'll see you soon.